I'm Ash into Family Medicine. What does it take to get into the residency of your dreams when it seems like all the odds are stacked against you? My name is John Arshadi, and I want to welcome you to the Road to Residency podcast. This is the show where we break down inspiring personal journeys of passionate physicians who had the courage and the commitment to take purposeful action to achieve their goals and serve their communities. Hey, champions. Welcome to another episode of the Road to Residency podcast with your host, John Arshadi. I am happy to present my next guest, who's one of the many unsung heroes of the COVID pandemic. She's an assistant physician in Jefferson City, Missouri. She sits on the board of a number of organizations, including the National Association of Assistant and Associate Physicians, the American Society of Physicians, and the Unmatched and Unemployed Doctors of America. This year, she matched into family medicine, and I'm delighted to have her here as a guest, Dr. Farina Khan. Congratulations on matching, and welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you and your audience today. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Let's hear a little bit about your backstory. Sure, absolutely. So essentially, you know, I'm born and raised in the U.S., you know, grew up in Chicago, and then I went to Pakistan for medical school, uh, graduated in 2015, and ever since then, I was, you know, applying for residency. I did do a year of internship out there so that I wouldn't have a gap on my CV um, as I was studying for my USMLE exams. And upon coming back and, you know, not matching um, in several cycles, I just continued to look for opportunities to build my CV. Um, you know, I've worked as a medical assistant, a research assistant. I pursued a master's in public health degree. Um, and you know, more, more recently, I, you know, obtained some uh, assistant physician experience in the state of Missouri, uh, both in the form of a primary care clinic that's closer to Kansas City, uh, as well as the uh, state disaster medical assistance team with their frontline COVID-19 efforts, uh, you know, notably with the COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, all those experiences together, along with, as you mentioned earlier, my board membership on a couple of different organizations that, you know, represent and advocate for unmatched medical graduates, uh, sort of all these things together helped bring me to the point where I'm at, where I finally, on my fifth attempt, was able to match into residency, and I will be heading to a family medicine program in Oregon this, this summer. And congratulations once again. Tell me, how was that process, you know, match after match after match you weren't getting through? And what kind of a toll did that take on you, and what did you learn through that? So... Um, I know that a lot of my struggles did stem from not performing on the USMLEs as well as I would have liked to. My scores were non-competitive and I did have attempts on more than one exam. So unfortunately, you can't retake an exam um, for a better score um, and you're stuck with any failure that you have. So the only thing you can do is try to offset it. So, you know, that's why I tried to pursue different kinds of U.S. clinical experience. I tried to get a little bit of research on my application and just trying to kind of look at how I can restructure my application every year in different ways. Um, you know, if I were to give people advice that, you know, may have applied once or twice or maybe more than that and they haven't had, you know, much success, then there's a couple of different things that they could potentially look at to try to, you know, make some improvements. Um, first of all is, you know, understanding the kinds of programs that you ideally want to apply for and, you know, at the same time ones that you're eligible for. 
So making sure you do your program research, make sure that your U.S. assembly transcript, your citizenship status, your year of graduation, how much U.S. clinical experience you have, those things are in alignment with the programs that you're applying for so that there's a higher likelihood of you hopefully hearing back positively from a program. Um, you know, other things to keep in mind is, you know, if you, it turns out you're looking at a lot of programs that are research oriented, you know, make sure to have the research on your CV to match that. Um, you know, like if I, if I look at my own program, for example, uh, my program has a very strong public health focus. So, you know, having that MPH background is definitely very helpful to see in my CV that this person has a genuine interest as opposed to someone that's just like, oh yeah, I love public health, please take me. You know, it, you know, they can, they can tell the difference between someone who is legitimate and someone who's just trying really hard to fit in wherever they can. Um, you know, besides that, um, you know, trying to diversify the experiences that you have, um, you know, networking is also very important, you know, getting to know new people, you know, pick up new skills, go to conferences, you know, and, you know, stay in touch, make sure to, you know, if you have friends that have matched or family friends that you know that are in, you know, different parts of healthcare, you know, try to shake all those branches, you know, you never know what you can come up with. Um, you know, a lot of the times, you know, when I look back on my own stuff, you know, A caused B to happen, B caused C to happen, everything is sort of interlinked. So, you know, every opportunity has potential if you're willing to take advantage of it properly. Um, you know, I know definitely one of the strongest things in my case was the assistant physician experience. And that is something that, you know, assuming that you're eligible for it, I would highly recommend people to look into that or something of that level, because, you know, different states have sometimes have um, an equivalent to that sort of thing. But, you know, definitely do what you can. You know, what it's kind of good to look at your application from a third person point of view instead of, you know, oh, it's my application and I'm an applicant and I think I'm awesome. You know, a program coordinator or a program director may look at your CV a little bit differently and identify gaps that you may not necessarily, you know, see when you're looking at it. Um, you know, as far as, you know, your personal statement and letters of recommendation, you know, making sure to have a good variety of letters of recommendation and with this, you know, the CV and the personal statement, you know, if you don't, if you can't have a personal, you know, professional service look at it, that's not the end of the world. You can, you know, utilize your professional network that's existing, have friends that match successfully or, you know, some, you know, established doctors that you may know personally, have them look it over, give some feedback, make some modifications. You know, be, be flexible, be adjustable, have a positive attitude. You know, that's very important. Um, you have to realize that, yeah, with the way the current system is, it's less than ideal. You know, in this past cycle, we had 40,000 something people applying for 30,000 something spots. So it's more of a quantitative issue than any sort of personal uh, reflection on your quality. You're not any less qualified than someone that didn't match or, you know, someone that did match versus someone that didn't match. It's, it's part of it is, you know, that person interviewing well or them ranking things properly. Like there's a, there's a, there's multiple factors that go into it, but at the end of the day, even some of the best candidates will lose out because there just simply aren't enough spots. So that's one thing you have to learn is to not take it personally and realize that, okay, I can do better. And, you know, I have to make sure that I stand out. Um, you know, with this past cycle, things were virtual um, compared to previous cycles. 
So you don't have that ability to kind of, you know, little things like, you know, in a typical interview, they look at body language, they look at how you're interacting with other people, how you carry yourself. And those things are a little bit harder to gauge in a virtual interview. So, you know, uh, honing in on that skill is is essential because being able to interview in general is, you know, is important, but being able to interview virtually is a, is a little bit distinct from that. And it's very important to do that. So again, whether it's trying to make time, you know, with people that have been through a lot of virtual interviews or again, friends that have met successfully or, you know, any professional documentary network, take the time, ask them to take a half hour out of their day, try to, you know, do a mock interview with you, let, you know, get the, the feedback that you need that, oh, you're not making enough eye contact or you're not smiling enough, or it sounds like you're a robot reading the script, you know? Yeah, just making sure that you are able to present the best version of yourself. I know it's very hard. It's a weird concept to think that, you know, 15 minutes with one individual multiplied by three or four, depending on how many people you're interviewing with in a given day, you know, they're supposed to get the most accurate representation of you and and make a judgment call comparing you to hundreds of other people that they're interviewing. Um, It it is definitely a, a weird concept to grasp, but, you know, you can only control the stuff that's in your hands, which is how you present yourself, because getting getting an interview is half the battle. But how you, you know, manage that interview is the other half of the battle. You know, the how you do in the interview is going to influence how you're going to be ranked or if you're even going to be remembered to be ranked in the first place. So you have to treat that like first impression is the last impression, do or die. You know, you have to take it very seriously. But again, balance it out with being a real person. Again, they can tell when someone is sounding like, you know, they've done their research on the program, but their answers are very rehearsed and very cookie cutter. And, you know, versus someone you can tell that's done their research, but at the same time, they're asking meaningful questions. They're, you know, making that, you know, that extra effort to interact with the residents, you know, at more of a personal level or the kind way or, you know, considerate way they're interacting with fellow applicants if you have that sort of interaction within the day. All these little things are noticed, you know, whether it's the actual interview or if you have a pre-interview dinner, which obviously didn't really happen so much this cycle, but any sort of pre-interview events, post-interview events where there's like second looks and, um, you know, meet the residence nights or game nights or all sorts of different things that happened this year that aren't, you know, typical to other seasons, even if it doesn't have the label of interview, you are being interviewed every time you're interacting with that program. Every little thing you do or say is being noticed and you want them to remember you in a positive way as much as possible. So just kind of keeping those things in mind. For sure. You brought up the assistant physician for those people who are going to apply next year and Mm -hmm. they're not sure how to apply for this assistant physician position. How can you guide them on, you know, how do they even start this process? So with the assistant physician thing, first thing to keep in mind is the basic eligibility criteria. Because some people have heard partial information from other people, and then, you know, they go about applying, not realizing that they may not actually fit the criteria, and they're just setting themselves up for potential rejection from a medical board, which is the kind of thing you have to report later in the future. So best to avoid that if you can. So for the audience's enlightenment, you know, what that that basic eligibility criteria for that, one is that you have to either be a U.S. citizen or hold a green card so that you have that legal permanent resident status. 
the second thing is they're going to look at when you took your CK exam. Um, so the, the, the different parameters for that, uh, one is that you've taken it within three years of your year of medical school graduation. The other parameters that you've taken it within three years of applying for the license. So if you're applying this year in 2021 for the license, you go back. So that's 2020, 2019. So, you know, between 2018 and now, if you've taken that, you know, your CK exam, it's good. And then the third parameter, which came from something called the grandfather clause, which is sort of a change in the original legislation that was made, is that if you specifically took your CK exam between 2014 and 2017, you are still eligible as well. So fitting one of those three criteria. And then I know the application when it talks about your graduation says you should be within maybe two or three years. But if I'm being very honest, they care more about the CK date as opposed to when you graduated from medical school. Um, if you fit the CK parameters, then it basically almost does not matter when you graduated. You know, there's People that like, you know, I'm a 2015 graduate myself. I help people that were 2011 graduates, 20, you know, 2009 graduates. Uh, there was one person that I helped get their license and they graduated in 1993. But because they took their CK within one of those timelines that I, you know, that I shared, they were able to successfully get the license. Um, so no, that's the first step is do you meet the criteria? If there's any doubt that you meet the criteria, you have to call the Missouri Medical Board and discuss your case with them. Because again, it's better that you talk to them and hear from them that, yes, we will still consider your application, go ahead and send it, or no, for this reason, we probably wouldn't consider your application so that it'll save you the hassle of sending it in the first place. Assuming that you meet the criteria or you've talked to the board and they said, yes, we'll consider your application. Then the next step is to actually fill the application, which is available on the Missouri Medical Board's website. Um, you know, it's a couple pages long. Um, first few pages are instructional. Um, you know, the other pages, you kind of just fill it out as, as you go. Um, some portions are not necessary to fill out. And, you know, if there's anyone that needs specific information on how to go about, you know, filling out that application, I'd be more than happy to follow up. Um, but when, once you fill out that application, you have to mail that out with the $25 application fee check to the address that is mentioned on the application itself in the top right-hand corner. You mail that out and then they will e the uh, board will email you to let you know that they've received your, your application package. And then they will email you again once they start the processing of it. This is the point where they will tell you that if you're missing anything, because you know the first two pages are instructional, but some people don't seem to read that as thoroughly as they should. And then they get told that, oh, you missed this component and this component, and they will not start processing your application unless it's complete. So at that point, if you're missing something, address it as soon as you possibly can. And once they have all the elements, they will begin the processing, which you know, pre-COVID was said to be four to six weeks. I really don't know what the timeline is looking like right now, but you know, it's important to at least get the process started so that in the meanwhile, you can still continue to do other things while you're waiting to get the license. And then once you successfully obtain the license and the way that you find out um, is that once you're at that point where they start processing your application, they give you the login and pin information. They're like, check on this you know, whenever you can. And it'll happen just one day as you're checking that you'll see that you've been issued a license number. It's not like they give you a, congratulations, you're officially licensed email. Just kind of realize, that, oh, yesterday I didn't have a number, now I have a number. 
Um, and then they will mail the physical hard copy to whatever address you mentioned in your application. But once you have the license number, then you're in the position to start, you know, looking into opportunities because pretty much all collaborative physicians in the state of Missouri will want you to have the license in hand uh, before you pursue an opportunity. Now, to help people understand what an assistant physician is, because most people hear it and think, oh, you mean PA. And no, and a, a physician assistant is a completely different category of healthcare professional. They did not go to medical school. You know, they have did a two-year program somewhere here in the U.S. And, um, you know, then they uh, pursue different, you know, certification exams or board exams. And then, you know, they do work at a mid-level provider level like an AP, but the background training and clinical hours that have been accumulated, completely different. Um, it's just unfortunate that the terminology is, is very similar, so people get confused. But to understand what an assistant physician really is, um, is that with this licensure, you are able to enter into a collaborative arrangement with a primary care physician who is based specifically in a medically underserved area and the specific um, specialties that are allowed for an assistant physician to work within is internal medicine, family medicine, OBGYN, pediatrics, and addiction medicine. So if you find a doctor in Missouri whose clinic is in a medically underserved area and they work within one of those five specialties, then it is able for you to move forward with kind of finalizing an arrangement um, about how you wanna go about this. Um, according to you know, the statutes, you have to work for 120 hours under the direct supervision of this collaborative physician. Um, and you know that begins from when you have uh, both signed your respective portions of the collaborative arrangement form, which you have to send to the board so they have it on file. So you do 120 hours and then after that, um, you know, depending on the comfortability of your collaborative physician, you will either continue to work under their direct supervision or, um, you can work within 50 geographical miles of the physi uh, collaborative physician if they're not on site with you. And during COVID, they have extended that number from 50 miles to 75. Uh, but a lot of the time, collaborative physicians will choose to remain on site so that there can be direct supervision in case the AP does need that sort of guidance. And what the AP gets to do the scope of practice is very similar to a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner where, you know, you are able to go for an NPI number, you're able to prescribe basic medications for patients, you can order lab work, you can order imaging studies, you can send them to specialists, you're able to, you know, counsel them, you can do some basic, you know, in-clinic hands-on procedures depending on what your, what your setup looks like. Um, and uh, you're able to chart notes in EMR. Um, and so basically, even though your scope of practice is at a mid-level like an NP or PA, sort of the, the role and expectation responsibility mirrors that of a, an intern resident physician in a residency program who is doing their outpatient or ambulatory medicine you know, rotation, whatever the program chooses to call it. And the aim of this experience is to get you reconnected with direct patient care. Because some people after medical school, you know, they work as a medical assistant or a scribe. So it's not like you're not working with patients, but that level of patient care isn't the same. In this case, you know, once you've completed, uh, completed your training period, you are that patient's primary care provider. You know, if that patient has a question and that patient needs a follow-up, that comes to you and it's your responsibility. 
you know, your collaborative physician has a legal responsibility to review a certain percentage of your charts, but essentially, you know, you are meant to handle things on your own. You have to exercise, you know, clinical judgment, whether it's, you know, completely your own, you're working with your colleagues, you're working with your collaborator, or you're using resources like UpToDate and Hippocrates and other sorts of, you know, medical resources that are available. But it's meant to kind of hone those skills and make you comfortable because eventually, you know, the goal is to have this experience help you get into residency, you know, make, make, you know, hone your skills as a clinician and be comfortable so that, you know, when that day comes that you match into residency, you know, it's not, it's not as difficult of a transition. You know, in my case, I've been doing the assistant physician thing since 2018. So I've, I have had direct patient care for that time. I've been doing all the things that a resident physician should be doing. So when most people look at their first six months or their first year of residency and they're just like, oh my God, it's gonna be so much work. And I haven't done most of this stuff in a long time. How am I gonna keep up? I'm not even worried. You know, I'm not even batting an eyelid. And I'm just like, okay, you know, setting is changing, but my workload is gonna be more or less the same, um, you know, that sort of thing. So it is definitely a good opportunity. Um, depending on the, you know, arrangement, some of them are paid, some of them are not. Um, you know, the ones that are paid uh, are not necessarily, you're not earning big bucks. Again, when people think of AP and confuse it with PA, PAs even straight out of PA school or freshly certified ones have the potential to make quite a bit of money. Uh, but an AP is not in that position. You know, one of the the, the uh, sort of struggles of being an AP is that unlike a physician, nurse practitioner, or a physician assistant, we are not recognized by Medicare yet as billable providers. So that is why we are limited to outpatient settings, whether it's a primary care clinic or an urgent care. We aren't able to work in a hospital or a VA or a federally qualified healthcare center at this point in time. But it's it's a work in progress to try to change that. Um, so because we are not billable providers, we basically can't help doctors or hospitals make the big bucks that they're looking to earn. So a lot of the times, you know, when you're looking at potential pay for an assistant physician, um, you're looking at probably minimum wage, you know, 15, 20 bucks an hour, or if you're looking at annual salary averages, like maybe 50 K, but that's without any benefits. So if someone is trying to get into this thinking that, you know, oh, I'm going to use this to pay off my student loans and be able to manage my living expenses. No, do not do the AP thing if you're trying to make money because you can probably make that much money or more money doing something else. But if your aim is to improve your CV, get back into direct patient care, earn letters of recommendation, and, you know, just kind of be able to work on yourself um, as a clinician, make yourself better for residency for when that time comes, you know, then it is definitely... 100% worth it. You know, like if I kind of quote the stats of my own particular clinic that I've been at, um, you know, looking at the cycle that just concluded in the past two cycles, accumulatively, we've had 26, you know, people from our clinic match into residency across different specialties as well, internal medicine, family medicine, general surgery and pathology. Um, so not to say it's a magic wand that will magically get you into residency. Otherwise I would have matched, you know, two and a half years ago myself, but it, it can't harm it. You know, if you've tried everything that you think you could possibly do and it hasn't accomplished anything, then maybe this is something worth looking into. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, but I live in a different state and, you know, dropping everything and moving is going to be such a struggle. And if it's not paid, you know, how is that even going to work? 
Um, yeah, there's definitely some difficulties involved, but all of those can be sort of worked around and adjusted if you have the right mindset. And if you connect with someone like myself or people within my, you know, NAAP organization that are, you know, licensed APs with, you know, at least a quarter of them are actually volunteering or working in some clinic. So we are more than happy to help people gain that guidance, whether it's to get the application in the first place uh, taken care of or to help you find an appropriate job opportunity um, once you do have the license. Because with the AP thing, it's, it's similar to residency that you have, you know, 400 plus people licensed across the country, but only a handful of opportunities. And therefore that creates a lot of competition. And a lot of the times a collaborative physician will prefer someone who has AP experience already under their belt compared to someone who just got licensed and maybe hasn't seen a, a patient in the right capacity for a year, two years, three years, maybe more than that in some cases. Um, so yeah, you know, keeping those things in mind, it's, it's definitely worth looking into if you, like I said, you've turned over every stone that you can think of and you're, you know, either you're not getting any interviews or your interviews are very limited and you just feel like, you know, your CV is still lacking something and, you know, what can you do to stand out? You know, people are finally getting to understand what APs are. So it, it makes you distinctive. If you get a residency interview, Every, like every interview that I've had since I got my license, they always ask about it. That, oh, you're an assistant physician. I've heard of that program. Tell me more about it. And when you explain it to them, a lot of the times they're like, oh, wow, this is exactly the kind of stuff that we're expecting our interns to be able to do. And, you know, then they will ask you about, you know, tell me about, you know, a very interesting or difficult patient encounter. And you're able to connect with them at a different level because you're not just a medical student or, you know, you're not someone that hasn't had any real clinical experience, like you're going to talk to them in real time about U.S. clinical experience, you know, patients um, that you've worked with um, in, a, in a recent time period. And that gives them the assurance that this person knows how this the healthcare system here works. They know how to deal with patients appropriately. You know, they do have experience with some, you know, EMRs, because that's actually, you know, during my interview processes, and I've talked to um, you know, applicants who successfully matched in these programs and they came from abroad. And, you know, they, when I asked, you know, different residents, what was your biggest issue in your first six months to a year? What did you struggle with the most? A lot of them said was getting used to EMR. You know, I can relate to that in a way that, you know, in Pakistan, my medical school did not have EMR. In my internship year, I was doing paper charts that no one could read, but nonetheless, they were paper charts. And so, you know, if that's what you were used to in Pakistan, India, Nepal, China, wherever it is that you went to med school that may not have caught up with the rest of the you know, 21st century. And then you come here and you're hit with Epic and Cerner and Aprima and, you know, eClinical Works and Practice Fusion. You're like, what is this? You know, um, if you're not really IT savvy or computer literate, that's a whole other struggle. But if you are, but you aren't familiar with EMRs, it'll take time to learn those. Some are very user-friendly and some aren't. And they require at least a day, if not more, of training just to understand how they work. You know, So the AP experience kind of helps you gain different skill sets that are very beneficial. And I would say, you know, besides those, it helped me kind of grow my own confidence level, not as a health, not only just as a healthcare professional, but as a person, 
you know, just kind of talking about my first few cycles, I used to suffer very strongly from imposter syndrome. When I'm hearing the other people that I'm interviewing with talking about, you know, all of their accomplishments that, oh, I presented a poster at, you know, five conferences, or I have 50 publications. I'm like, I haven't done any of that. You know, I'm not worthy of being here. Why would they consider me when they have all these other awesome people here? So it helped me break away from that mindset, you know, because um, that kind of shows if you are insecure and you don't believe in yourself, then other people have no reason or desire to believe in you either. But if you believe in yourself and what you're doing, it shows when you're talking about things, you know, they can see that there's passion there and that there's dedication there. And that is something that will attract them because that's what they're looking for. They aren't looking for someone who, I mean, will just be in the program and take up space for three years. They want someone who will who will be proactive and, you know, want to get things done, is willing to learn if there's things that they, you know, can, you know, there's, there's room for them to learn. And most importantly, um, programs need to be able to figure out if you're going to be a good fit for their program. And someone, a lot of the times, if you look at assistant positions, you know, in my case, our organization has maybe close to 150, right? If you ever sit and talk with some of these individuals, they have fascinating stories. And, you know, you hear things like, you know, they were doctors for maybe a decade, two decades in a different country, or, you know, they've been here and they've gotten a one master's or two master's. Some of them are PhD holders. And so it, it shows you that these people didn't just deal with the status quo and sit there and cry about their situation. They, despite all of the hardships they already, you know, were over, like trying to deal with, they took that extra step. They're like, you know what? I don't just want to sit there. I want to be able to make myself useful. Um, and, you know, like I said, only a quarter of people are actually working, but then, you know, you can see a difference between even the people that have the license and haven't worked on it yet versus the people that have been working. Um, you know, it, it does kind of pay off. You know, I, I noticed in this cycle, especially a lot of people that have been APs for a while, um, it, it seemed to be a good cycle for them. You know, that, that work was being recognized, I guess, maybe in the midst of the pandemic, seeing that, oh, this person was actually doing something instead of sitting on their butt at home. You know, they were actually engaging in patient care and helping to mitigate the pandemic. Or like in my case, kind of from that other angle that I'm out there vaccinating people and mitigating the pandemic in a different way. So, you know, being able to share those experiences with the appropriate amount of emotion and um, kind of highlighting those positive points that a program will remember you by positively, you know, that, that sort of stuff has the ability to help. Excellent. I appreciate it. Let's talk about how you got involved in these organizations. So the first organization that I got involved in was the National Association of Assistant slash Associate Physicians. So it started off as a WhatsApp group by a different name. And I was a member of it, but I wasn't particularly active. I did, you know, keep tabs on what was being talked about because um, it was generally a good resource because with AP jobs, it's not like you can go on Indeed or Monster and there's, you know, you're, there's a list of jobs that you can apply to online. Basically, this, this WhatsApp group was sort of the medium and forum for people to talk about job opportunities word of mouth and, you know, share other sorts of things like off-cycle residency positions or little, you know, CME opportunities or other, you know, things you could do to help your CV and whatnot. 
So, you know, I was a part of this group, you know, for about, you know, at least a year and a half, two years. Um, and then it was basically March of last year where I started to take more of an active role because the pandemic hit and we're hearing things on the news that, oh my God, we have a doctor shortage. And, you know, we're hearing things about nursing students and medical students being graduated early and pulling people out of retirement and uh, flying people in from different countries to be able to help with healthcare here. And we're just like, there's thousands of us sitting here that are more than willing to help at a moment's notice. And we are fully qualified if we were given the opportunity. So it started with me doing research on, cause I, I was, you know, if you remember initially last year, you would hear, you know, the governor of New York talking about we're in desperate need of healthcare providers from other states, please come and help us. And there's, you know, out of, uh, out of state license re reciprocity. So I'm like, oh, well, we have a state medical board backed license. Would they accept this license? So then we, you know, I started the process of looking into um, different states' policies on that. You know, some states were willing to, most of them really weren't because they're saying that, oh, we don't really have an equivalent to your healthcare provider status in our state, so we can't really do anything about it. So, um, you know, a couple of weeks of that, it was, you know, a little bit disappointing and disheartening. And then it was like, wait a minute, why aren't we looking at the state where this, this license came from in the first place? They know what it is. They're the ones that give us the license. Maybe they have an opportunity for us. Um, and then, you know, that's where I came across the disaster medical assistance team and, you know, kind of putting the word out about that and getting into the organization myself. And, you know, I'm, you know, one year later, I'm still kind of, you know, working with them. It's been a great experience. So, um, I became much more active sharing those opportunities with people and sharing that information. And, um, and we did kind of decide that, I mean, it's not that it was decided. We knew ever since 2017, you know, there, you know, I mentioned the Medicare issue earlier and, you know, not enough opportunities. The fact that not all of them are paid, you know, we've identified some existing issues within the whole AP program and we did want to work on it. So we figured instead of just sitting there and griping about it, we need to formalize ourselves because, you know, we're looking at, you know, how do nurse practitioners get things done? How do physician assistants get things done? They came together and made formal groups like they have actual national associations and they have funding. They have lobbyists, you know, they have, you know, made a lot of strides to be able to get themselves voices or get themselves seats at the table. So I'm like, we need to follow their lead and start walking in that same direction. So then we kind of uh, voted to create sort of an interim committee um, to start working on some of those things. So then I was voted interim president, you know, to kind of start working on things. And so I did, you know, looking into different ways to help fix, you know, the AP stuff or, you know, one of the major things was we were thinking advocacy is important, educating people is important. Most people still don't know what an AP is. so you know, I have been on different podcasts and, you know, been interviewed in different, you know, for different, you know, sources and outlets. And I've been, you know, taking it upon myself to spread the word. You know, I have it on all of my social media accounts that this is what I am. And it had the attendant effect that people are following up and they're like, oh, so you're an assistant physician. I've heard about this. You know, what is it? And can I get involved and that sort of thing? So I've worked to kind of grow that. So the efforts I was making when that group earned me my interim position. And then when we voted to have a formal election, 
I essentially ran unopposed because no one was crazy enough to do all the stuff that I did for the organization. So, you know, I've, you know, continued that on. And even now I'm hoping to retain that title and continue to work with the organization as much as possible to continue make, you know, with making the progress that we've made so far. Now, the work that I did within that group was noticed by a colleague that is a fellow AP, not one that's working, but, you know, he has the license. And he told me that he was, you know, one of the founders of um, an IMG group in Washington State, uh, Washington Academy of International Medical Graduates. Um, that particular group made a lot of strides within their state to help give IMGs the opportunities to build their CV, get employed, get paid, that sort of thing. So a lot of good work, but limited to that one state. He's like, I want to be able to expand and do this kind of work in other states. So I'm trying to go national with this model and I need people to be on my board and help me with that. And I've seen your work with the AP group. I think you would be a very good person to be on board with the team. So are you interested? I'm like, absolutely. It sounds great. I would love to be able to help. And, you know, he reached out to other individuals in different states and then our board sort of came together. And then that particular group's focus, I mean, they, they did want to further the AP agenda because it does help unmatched medical graduates, but that was just one little top, like subtopic project of theirs. Overall, it really was um, advocacy for unmatched medical graduates. So trying to push uh, legislation like the Resident Physician Shortage Reduction Act and other sorts of pieces of legislation that will help create more residency spots because no matter how you look at the issue, that is the root of it. We can, this system cannot improve unless we have more spots. Um, and you know whether you look at it because it's tied to funding or other things, like it needs to be solved. But one of the biggest issues of as to why it hasn't been solved yet is that the general public has no freaking clue that it's even an issue in the first place. You know, my colleague that I was talking about, you know, from Washington State, when he was doing his work for his, you know, state-based organization, he said that 65% of Washington lawmakers had no idea that residency was even a requirement to become a fully licensed doctor. They're like, oh, we thought you graduated medical school, you just become a doctor. Like you just go oh, wow. up to a hospital and and it's just like, oh, geez, I wish it was that easy, but no. So, so we, you know, we started reaching out to our legislators in our respective states and educating them that, hey, you know, this is how this 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 whole process works. This is the issue, and you know, we need to work on a solution for it. You know, so that started some of the, you know, the workings there. Um, and I kind of started my work in both organizations about a month apart. So I kind of was doing both of them simultaneously. Um, the third organization uh, was being run by someone who had also gotten, you know, the AP license. And um, that organization was, again, very, very strong on the advocacy front. And it was like they were planning to do sort of an advocacy trip to D.C. to meet with legislators um, again, talking about this whole issue and whatnot. So that group was lining up different meetings with different state, you know, representatives and, you know, senators and whatnot. And so this person reached out to me and said, you know, um, I would love to be able to have your help with this. Because again, looking at the work I was doing in the other two groups. So I said, sure, I'll come on board. 
and I, you know, attended a couple of their virtual meetings to kind of see what direction they were going to go in. And we all as a group went to DC at the end of January. And um, we had um, the organization out there, Doctors Without Jobs, which is run by Kevin Lynn. Um, so we met with Kevin and he's one the one that kind of gave us the space to be able to uh, sit together because we basically did all these meetings with these uh, representatives and senators virtually as a group, you know, out of this conference room. So he gave us the space and, you know, in some cases, uh, Kevin himself had a lot of really good political contacts. So, you know, if we were a constituent from that particular legislators, you know, area, then we would take the lead on that particular meeting. But sometimes Kevin had a really good relationship with that particular area or that legislator. So then he would step in and kind of run the meeting. But essentially the purpose of these meetings was to, again, educate, advocate, you know, teach them there's this problem. This is what, why it's a problem. And, you know, these are different solutions for it. And we all need to work together to do something about it because they had no idea that there's 10,000 plus of us in this sort of situation that have no way of being able to get into the system because they keep trying, but it, you know, the system blocks you out and, you know, just trying to help them realize that it's definitely time to make a change. Like you can't be crying about a doctor shortage. It's not a doctor shortage, it's a training shortage, right? So helping them understand that angle. So it started with that advocacy trip that we were there for two days. And then after that, on you know pretty much a weekly basis, those virtual meetings with different state uh, Congress people have continued, whether they're initial meetings or follow-up meetings. And, um, you know, that group also, you know, is uh, kind of talking to other big organizations. I know they recently um, attended the Cogni webinar because that uh, group um, does have some influence with some of this, you know, GME type stuff. So being able to go there and talk about these issues and trying to get people to think a little bit more and be like, hey, yeah, you know what, we need to do something about this. And so, yeah, that, that group is just focused on spreading the word. And um, I mean, with my schedule changing since March, um, it's been a little bit more difficult to continue to work with these organizations, but to the best of my ability, I do hope to maintain my link with all of them and help them continue to move in the right direction and help them reach their goals. Because if anything, matching into residency helps them ha all have someone on the inside, if you will. Yeah. It's easier to affect change when you have that leverage. And, you know, you know, fast forward three years later, hopefully after passing my board certification exam, I will be a fully licensed doctor. And then I have a completely different standing, different network, different resources at my disposal. And I can turn, you know, turn back around and figure out how to help them in ways that I wouldn't be able to up until now in this past year. And even that in the ways I can't as a resident, but as a doctor, I have a different sort of leverage that I would be able to use. So that's the hope at least. That's such an inspiring story. And these organizations, what you've been saying is, you know, a lot of it goes along the lines of the organization that I've started up. Obviously they've done a lot more than I have. And I'd love to collaborate with you guys. That's something that we can talk about. Yeah. In the future. Um, yeah. But very interesting story, and I appreciate you being here with us. I enjoyed it. I, I know my listeners are going to enjoy it. Do you have any last words for the listeners? Um, I mean, first of all, thanks for listening. Yeah. Uh, I kind of have a tendency of writing sometimes, but um, 
you know, I just want to mention the importance of not giving up. You know, in my case, like I said, this is my fifth time applying. It got harder and harder to deal with that reality every year. And then, you know, thinking about UK, you know, have, you know, I think I've given it my all, but, you know, it doesn't seem to be working out. I can't keep my entire life on hold. Like, how long am I going to keep putting myself through this? And you hear all sorts of things from, you know, it could be your, you know, people that you know that are matched residents or attending physicians or other people, you know, they, they look at you based on, you know, those superficial things like your year of graduation or USMLE performance or just like, oh, you're never going to make it. Don't bother. You should just give up or, oh, just become a nurse or a PA instead. Or, oh, you might be better off going back to medical school all over again or go to a different country and practice if you're an IMG. I've heard you all know? these things. <laughs> Or like, yeah, like, oh, your scores are not competitive. You know, patho will take. You won't have to deal with patients. It's not competitive. Go for patho. You know, you're going to hear so much negativity. And it's very easy to get disheartened, and especially the worst time of the year is March. Because, you know, for the, the fraction of people that it works out for, it's great. But for that other majority, you know, it's very, very hard to, you know, especially if it's not the first time you've applied and it's happened again, you know, to have to swallow that pill and come to terms with it. And, you know, you're on social media and you're surrounded by these, you know, congratulations, you've matched posts and people celebrating. And, you know, you have like the opposite emotions going on inside and you kind of just have to regroup and, you know, continue to push forward. So, you know, it, it seems like, you know, we're closing in on April. So I feel like a lot of people have hit that point where, they've accepted it, they've come to terms, and now they're trying to focus on putting the best foot forward. So just, yeah, the important thing is to keep a positive attitude and continue to have faith in, I'm, I'm not gonna say have faith in the process because the process is bogus, but have faith in <laughs> yourself and have faith that things will work out in their due time. You know, like a little anecdote that I can share is that there's a senior of mine that, you know, is from my med school. Um, she was a year senior to me. And they were a group of five friends. And that one year, four of them matched and that one girl did not. So I was just like, oh, that must suck. You know, all of her best friends matched and she didn't. She was left behind, this and that. But the following cycle, she did match. So, you know, I reached out to her on, on social media to congratulate her and everything. And she was obviously, you know, very happy. And then she said something. And she's like, you know, I'm glad I matched this year and not last year. And I was just like, what the hell? Like... Why wouldn't you wanted to match last year? You know, now like right now you match, but now you're a year behind all your friends and you know, everything mm -hmm. like that. <clears throat> but the point that she made was very interesting. She's like, you know, um, in her case, her, her mother had ended up passing away due to breast cancer. So she's like, because of the timing, I was able to be there with my family and probably one of the most difficult times you've ever had to go through. She was able to gain more clinical experience in that year and work on her CV and herself. So she's like, you know, if I would have matched last year, I would have been a shitty resident or, you know, that sort of thing. But she's like, now going into residency, I'm much more comfortable. I'm much more confident. I know that I'm um, set up for success at this point. <clears throat> so, you know, then I thought about that. I'm just like, wow, that's really powerful that, you know, timing is very, very important. And you can't really get a feel for it yourself sometimes that, you know, oh, I haven't matched in five years, but you never know that sixth year may work for you. 
like I have two colleagues that I work with on the disaster medical assistance team. They matched after nine years this this year. So it was, you know, it was very exciting. And it's like, it's very inspirational. And, you know, if you've seen my social media posts, I went ahead and I was very transparent. You know, these were my scores. These were my, you know, all the red flags I had on my application. But, you know, despite all of that, it still worked. So what you're supposed to learn from that is that you don't need the perfect application to match. You, you just need to keep keep your head up and keep your eye on the prize and keep your head in the game. And you just have to keep trying. If you fall on down six times, you get up, you still get up the seventh time. Um, so just resilience does pay off. Um, and everything that you do will benefit you eventually. So, you know, have faith in yourself and in your efforts and just continue to keep grinding because that's the only way you'll get somewhere. If you just sit there and boohoo about your situation, there's no way that it's going to change. It's change only being proactive and being willing to step outside your comfort zone and do weird things that you don't think you would have necessarily done. You know, whether it's having to spend extra money or having to move to a different state or, you know, maybe go into a, a different aspect of medicine that you'd never thought you'd bother getting into, but you have to be willing to step outside the box and, you know, go outside your comfort zone and kind of do what you need to do to succeed. Absolutely. I agree with you hundred percent. If you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast, share it with your friends and get this message out there because this is a time where a lot of people are skeptical and they're saying, I'm an older grad, I'm an IMG, I have trouble with the USMLEs, there's no way I can compete, what do I do? Well, we want to show you that there is hope. Actually, right now is the best time to match as an IMG. You know, our match rates have gone up from 48% in 2010 when I graduated medical school to 61% in the 2020 match. That's a significant jump. And as a matter of fact, more than 25% of the U.S. healthcare system is made up of international grads. So know that you can do it. You will do it. Just don't give up. And I hope to see you in the next episode.